on there. We'll be faithful to pray, and God is faithful to hear. Tonight, I want to begin a study in the book of Romans. Uh, I feel like we're probably going to study through this book the same way that we have through the first two letters there at the church of Corinth. So before we get started, I'm going to be a minute getting to it. Before we get started there in Romans chapter 1, let's go ahead and pray. We'll just ask God to, to move in here tonight and to open up our minds and to teach us some things about his word, to, to teach our hearts, to help us be a better servant. God, thank you so much for being so good. Thank you for loving us the way that you do, God. Lord, thank you for your spirit that you pour out on us, God. Thank you for your presence that you've allowed us to fill in this place even through all these times. God, I thank you for the way you carried out messages through the airways so that people could sit in their homes, God, and feel your presence and hear from your word. And I pray tonight, God, as we look, I ask you, would you teach me first that you might teach through me, God. Help me, Father, even as I stand here and teach, will you teach me something about your word? And I pray you'd help each one of us to learn something, God, and something that'd make us more holy, more pure, more righteous, closer to you, God. May it cause us to seek you and desire you more and, uh, and grow in our relationship, our walk with you, Father. You've been good to us. I just want to tell you thank you, tell you that we love you. We praise you in the precious holy name of Jesus. Amen. Romans is, is an epistle, one of the epistles of Paul, an epistle simply a letter. Um, it's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Rome, written around 57, 58 A.D. Paul has never been to Rome yet at the time that he writes this letter. We know that he goes later, but at, at the end of 58 A.D., Paul is at the end of his third missionary journey. He arrived at Jerusalem for the purpose of observing uh, the, the Feast of the Pentecost. As the reason he came into Jerusalem. There was others there from the province of Asia that stirred up trouble against Paul, and they accused him of destroying Judaism and defiling the temple. And the Apostle Paul was arrested because of those things. Now, a couple of years later, Governor Felix is replaced by Governor Festus, and Governor Festus, wanting to appeal to the Jews, wanting to please the Jewish leadership, he was going to send the Apostle Paul to stand trial back at Jerusalem, which all honesty would have probably meant almost certain death so when he brought paul in for questioning paul unveiled his roman citizenship well what that meant was by law he couldn't send paul to jerusalem for trial he had to send paul to rome if paul requested to go to rome for his trial so somewhere around 60 a.d paul would begin his first journey to rome but as a prisoner king herod agrippa ii that would have been the great grandson of Herod the Great, but he was in Caesarea, so Festus invited him to come and to hear Paul speak, and Paul was speaking on his behalf, and Paul, speaking to Agrippa, he began to tell him his story. He told him how he was a Pharisee, and he told him how he had the letters to go out and, and, and arrest those that claimed to be Christians, and he told him about his road to Damascus experience and how the light shone. He told him about what Jesus Christ did. He told him about his conversion. He told him about his desire to go out and to preach the gospel. And Agrippa looked at Paul and he said, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. But Paul's journey, he, he heads, on, heads on into um, uh, Rome as a prisoner. And there's a lot of stories, of course, along the way. You know, the shipwreck at Malta and where he's gathering the firewood and, and, and bit by the snake. But, you know, for the past two years, we have been studying the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. And he's told in the second letters we've looked at, it's 
extensively that he's told him that he's coming back for a third visit. Well, ironically enough, this letter to the church at Rome was written from the city of Corinth. After Paul said, I'm coming back, he did indeed go back for that third visit. And while he's there, he writes this letter to the church at Rome. So when we look at the New Testament, of course, we have the, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels as a recorded of the life of Jesus Christ. And then we have where Luke wrote uh, the Acts of the Apostles. But then we have this epistle to Rome, this letter to the church at Rome. This isn't the first epistle written. That's obvious. He's already written to Corinth, several others. So it's obviously not the first letter that is written. This is just one more thing that shows you the Bible is not in a chronological order of events by days of time. But rightfully so, the book of Romans is placed as the first of the epistles here in the New Testament because this letter is the most complete exposition of all of the New Testament of the central truths of Christianity. Many people look uh, at, at the, the book of Romans and, and they call it the, the gospel, they call it the doctrine, the constitution. Paul makes it clear in this letter that he has a great desire to come visit Rome, to visit those there at Rome, and to share with them all that God has shown him. The theme of the letter is the gospel of God. It relates the entire truth of God without partiality. As a matter of fact, as we'll see in the second chapter, in verse 11, he says that, that there is no respect of persons with God. The Apostle Paul makes it very clear that God is the God of the Jew and of the Gentile. Paul makes it obvious that everyone is a sinner. Everyone is separated from God by our sin. Everyone is in need of a Savior, and everyone has the same Savior available to them, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. The justification of Christ and Christ alone is the only one that can save us from our sins, and no one is excluded from that. The book of Romans, it shows us God's grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. It shows us that God can declare us as sinners God can declare us as righteous through the atoning blood of His Son. Now Paul points out here in the book of Romans the new life to those that are justified. Old things have passed away, become all, behold, all things become new. We receive a new life, and Paul points out the new life that we can experience through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit once we're washed in the blood. He points out in chapter 12, of course it'll be a little while before we get to chapter 12, but you know it, he says that we are holy, that we're to live our lives holy and acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. But this, this letter that, that's known as the Constitution of Christianity is considered by many to be the most important book or the most important of the epistles in all of the New Testament. So even though Paul's never been to Rome yet, he does have some friends at Rome, but he, he begins with an introduction of himself. He gives an introduction, a picture of who he is in Christ, and then he gives us a glimpse of the theme of what this letter is going to be about, and that is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beginning in verse number 1 of Romans chapter 1, he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That means he's told us all about this before it ever happened. Verse number 3, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom ye 
also were called of Jesus Christ to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul opens up with the word servant. The word that he uses there literally means bondservant. Another word for that is a slave. It means to be bound in chains. Paul says, I am a servant, but Paul says, I am a voluntary servant. I am not bound by chain. I am bound by love in my heart for my Savior. But then Paul says that he is called to be an apostle. An apostle is an official ambassador of Jesus Christ. It comes from a word that means to be sent. So Paul says, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. I, I am an apostle. I am a servant that is called to be sent, that I might tell you some things, that I might give you some things. Jesus Christ called me to be an apostle, gave me some things, has sent me to give them to you. So that's Paul's opening introduction to the letter. And he says, he is separated unto the gospel of God. That word separated means to be excluded or to be divided from. Paul has been excluded from his past. He has been separated from who he once was. He has been divided from the sins that once drove him. But that's the word that you and I have in common with the Apostle Paul. We have the exact same thing. We are we separated. We are excluded from the sins of our past that did so easily beset us. We are separated from the life of sin that once held us in bondage. We are divided or delivered um, from the worldly things that used to drive us. What was given to Paul was given to you, was given to me. We have the same amount of grace, the same indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Paul says that it is all the same, that God is no respecter of persons. So you have what Paul has in terms of salvation. But Paul says that he has something else. He says that he has a calling, a calling to preach the gospel. Now there's three great truths that are given to Paul. These three great truths you'll find throughout his letters as he writes, he expounds on these things. It is the mystery of the cross. It is the mystery of the church. And it is the mystery of the return of Christ. Now, these things are mysteries, but they are not revelation. As he said over in verse number two a while ago, all of the prophets of the Old Testament told about Jesus Christ continually. It described the cross. It described the grave. It described the resurrection. All of that was foretold. So they are mysteries, but they're not revelations. Verse number three, Paul goes on. He says, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David, according to the flesh. The New Testament begins and the New Testament ends with the reference to Jesus Christ as the son of David. The very first verse in the New Testament, Matthew 1, 1, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The very last verse that concludes the New Testament, Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. Jesus Christ is the complete fulfillment of the messianic line. He is the first and the last. There was none before him. There will be none after him. There's none that came ahead of him. We're not looking for anybody to come. We're not looking for anybody different. The only thing we're looking for is this same Jesus to step out and part the eastern skies 
Call home those who have been washed in the blood. There's not going to be another. It's going to be the same Jesus is going to come back and get the redeemed, and he's going to take us to the place that he promised us, the same Jesus. He says there's not one before, there's not one after. He begins the New Testament, he ends the New Testament. He is the opening statement, he is the closing statement. He is all there was, he is all there will be, he is all there is, he is all we need. He is Jesus Christ. So Matthew and Luke, they both give us the genealogies of the line of Christ. They both trace him back to the throne of David as being the promised seed. It's worth mentioning that at Calvary, nobody bothered to mention his genealogy. It's worth mentioning that at Calvary, there at the crucifixion, Nobody wanted to talk about where he came from. Nobody brought up who he was a descendant of. Nobody talked about the family tree. Nobody wanted to trace things back. See, none of the scribes and none of the Pharisees, who, by the way, knew the law. You understand, they knew the law and the prophets. They had to memorize them. They knew the prophet Isaiah all too well. They could quote the prophet Isaiah. That's part of the Pharisee. That's part of the law, part of the scribes. The scribes, those that record the word of God, that take it and move it from one sheepskin to another sheepskin for preservation. They know the law. They know the book of Isaiah. They know everything that was said about Jesus Christ. But at Golgotha, none of them brought up Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, that says he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our grief. And carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Notice they didn't talk about that when they had him on the whipping block putting stripes on his back. All oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before his shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken away from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. If they had brought that up at Calvary, it would have ruined everything that they were trying to do because it would have established his absolute right to the throne of David. It would have verified him as king of the Jews. So they didn't bring any of that up at the crucifixion. So what we see is Jesus is the promised one. Jesus is the revealed one. We know that Jesus is the reigning one, but if we look at verse number 4, we see that he is the resurrected one. It says, declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. That phrase that he uses there, the spirit of holiness, tells us that, that Jesus Christ lived a life that was above reproach. He lived a life void of sin. He was victorious over the power of sin. He, he lived in perfect oneness, perfect harmony with the Father. He never said, a bad word. He never said an unkind word. He never had an unkind thought about anyone. He never exaggerated the truth just to make the story sound better. He never withheld part of the truth 
because he never had any secrets. He never had anything to hide. He was never tempted by possessions or driven by passions. He never wasted time. He never attempted to do things for selfish gain. He never gave bad advice or, or wicked counsel. He lived in absolute perfection. Would love to live one perfect day. I wonder how many of us would love to get up one morning and go an entire day, not think one impure thought, not have one evil thing come to mind, not think one thing bad about somebody, not, not have any, any thoughts or activities, but to live one day without any evil deed. I wonder how many of us would love to come together at the end of our lives, and here we are at the close of our lives, and be able to look back and, and say, man, I had that one day where God could look down and smile. I, I lived one day that I didn't do anything wrong. Now, I'm quite positive I'm never going to have that day, and I'm pretty sure none of us will, but I wonder what it would be like to have one perfect day where we never disappointed God. We never let him down. God looked down and he smiled on us for the entire day. At 33 and a half years, if you do the math, Jesus had more than 12,000 consecutive perfect days where he never failed the Father, not once. Never made a mistake not once. Hebrews chapter 7 says in verse number 24, But this man, because he continueth forever, hath an unchangeable priesthood, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those priests, to offer up sacrifice for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. From the moment he opened his eyes in Bethlehem stable to the moment he closed his eyes on Golgotha's hill, he never made a mistake. He never committed a sin. He never thought one bad thing about anybody. But then Paul goes on, and it says, by the resurrection from the dead. Now, Paul was a great preacher, and Paul preached some great messages, and because of Paul's power and the apostolic power we talked about he had, and because of his passion for the Word of God, his passion to see lost people saved, his passion to see people come to know Christ as a personal Lord and Savior and, and be given salvation, that passion that he had will cause people to listen to his preaching. It'll cause people to come, and many times, Paul had a good crowd of listeners. Paul had a lot of people that were paying attention. He had a good listening audience until he mentioned the resurrection. Many times, once Paul mentioned the resurrection, everybody had gotten reeled in on the edge of their seat and said, ah, one of the main reasons, because they had the Sadducees there. And the Sadducees, they didn't even believe in the resurrection. It didn't matter to Paul then, and it don't matter to Paul now if you believe in the resurrection or not. Paul knew it was the real deal. And Paul says, you don't have to believe in the air if you don't want to, but you're going to keep on breathing it till the day you die. 
Paul wasn't worried about what anybody thought. Paul had seen the resurrected Savior with his own eyes. He talked to him at the road to Damascus. He received instructions from him at the road to Damascus. There was no doubt in his mind about the resurrected Savior, about the Lord Jesus Christ, or his power, or his authority over death, hell, and the grave. And Paul said in Acts chapter 9, verse number 1, actually Luke wrote it, it says, Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went into the high priest. So this is Saul before he got saved. This is Saul the Pharisee. This is the one that has the letter. He's the one that's persecuting Christians. He is going out and beating Christians. He is arresting both men and women, bringing them back prisoner. And if he kills them, he doesn't care. Just like when they stoned Stephen to death. Didn't matter none to him. He stood there and held the clothes. If you want to kill him, kill him. Or we'll arrest him, take him back. But Paul did not like the Christians. His name was Saul. And it says he's breathing out threats and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. Went into the high priest, desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogue. Then if he found any in this way. So that means he's looking for anybody that even looks like a Christian. Talks like a Christian. If you even partly proclaim to be a Christian, Saul's looking for you. He's got your number. He says, anybody that be in the way, whether they be men or women, they might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. He fell to the earth, heard a voice said unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Verse number 5, Saul answered, he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said, Arise, go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Jesus Christ is indisputably alive. And Paul says, there ain't nothing going to change the fact, and I won't be involved in any conversation contrary to the fact i'm going to preach jesus christ i'm going to preach the resurrection and if you want to go to heaven you can't you've only not got to believe that he's the son of god he's a descendant of the throne of david you got to believe that he died on calvary's cross shed his blood for your sin can forgive your sin but it does you no good unless you believe that on the third day he arose over death hell and the grave that you might have eternal life paul says it's not up for discussion it's just the reality of the facts Verse number 5, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. In the first four verses, Paul says that we're committed to the truth. What he said in verse number 5 is we're, we're committed to the work. See, you and I will never be committed to the work if we're not first fully committed to the truth. Because we have to be fully committed to the truth before we can truly commit to the task. See, there's a lot of people that will come to a church today. They, they come, they, they get in, they, they feel something that they like. They, they sense a presence, and they want to be in on that. They like being around it. They like being around the people. They, they like being a part of the work, being a part of the task. But if we aren't first fully committed to the truth, then it's just a matter of time till the work will burn out. If the first full commitment is not to Jesus Christ and to the Word of God, if the first full commitment is not to His Word, and you begin working hard as a novice, people begin to be puffed up, as the Bible talks about, and before long, 
people that came in hot and heavy and did everything in the church for a couple of years, where are they at? Why, why aren't they at church anymore? You have to be fully committed first to the truth before you can be fully dedicated to the work. You notice there in verse number 5, grace comes before apostleship. Salvation has to come before service. We can't serve the Lord until we've been saved by the Lord, that, that we're one with the Lord. Commitment to the truth must come before the commitment to the task. Verse number 6, Paul includes you and I in the equation. He says, among, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. Now, when we get to chapter 8, Paul expounds in detail. That's a, that's a pretty good study. It'll be a while before we get there. But in chapter 8, he discusses in detail what is involved in this call that you and I have. This call, there has to be this commitment to the truth. But once we have this commitment to the truth, there is a commitment to the call. There is a commitment to the service. There is a commitment to, to working, doing the work for the Lord. And Paul handles that. But then he says, for now, it's just these three things to all that be in Rome. In verse number 7, he says, Beloved of God, called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul begins to expound on some things. To start right there would be, more time than I have to finish up in one. So what I want to do is pick up right there next Wednesday night that we can begin to get off in this study. I just wanted to make sure you kind of had a good opening introduction to the letter to see where the letter came from to learn a little bit. You know, does it have anything to do with your salvation to know that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to Rome from Corinth? No, it doesn't, but it's knowledge of the Scriptures. Does it matter that you know that how and when he was arrested and, and things that happened along the way? No, it really doesn't, but knowledge of the Scriptures is, is invaluable. You see things in the book. The more you learn, is even part of the, the trivia questions and the devotions. I know they're just little tidbits, and for a lot of you, they're little nothings, but somebody, somebody every day learns a little something, and the more we know about this book, then the more we can be dedicated to this book. And the more dedicated to this book, the more knowledge we have, and, and the more we are dedicated to the truth, the stronger we're going to be in the work. The harder we're going to work in the faith, the, the more we'll be able, be able to endure the hard times that we face. Because the first dedication is to the Word. So I hope maybe tonight you learned a little something about the letter to the church at Rome, where it came from, um, the things the Apostle Paul put in there. And Lord willing, we'll pick up right here at verse number 7, move into verse number 8 next week, and we'll see what else God can teach us to, to make us better servants. Well, well, God bless you. Thank you so much for being part of Wednesday night's Bible study. It is a prayer service time. I'd ask you now as we close, take a little time right where you're at and pray just like we normally would right here in the altar. I'd ask you to stop and pray for the sick, pray for those in need, pray for those families that have lost loved ones in the past um, eight or nine weeks since this has happened. Um, we've had several funerals here in the church. I'd ask you to be in prayer for all that are in need. Take a few minutes there, and then I hope to see you right here next Sunday. Um, hey, tell somebody about Jesus.